Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. When I was around eight years old, my family went on a picnic at the beach. And we were on a sand dune in a pavilion. There was a grill next to the pavilion. I remember it well. It was to the left of the pavilion. We were cooking hamburgers, looking over the ocean, peaceful scene, ocean calm, surfers out there. I don't know why sitting on their boards, dangling their feet in the water. Beautiful day. And if we were in a movie, this peaceful, serene scene would change because you would start hearing the music change. And you would hear, dun-dun, dun-dun. Right? Because all of a sudden, about a hundred yards beyond the surfers, four or five fins popped out of the water and started heading towards the surfers. So we're sitting there watching this, you know, it's kind of surreal. And so we start screaming, bloody murder, you know, warning them, Shark! right? Shark! But to no avail. They're just sitting there on their boards chatting, you know? We were so far away that they couldn't hear us. But we kept screaming because we saw those fins getting closer. So we're screaming and screaming and finally some of the people on the beach heard us yelling and so they start yelling. And finally, you can see one of the surfers kind of head pop up, you know, from their conversation. And then he turns. And then all the feet come out of the water. I mean, that quickly. And the sharks come right at them, go right under them, come right back up, and keep going. It was amazing. They were probably after a school of fish. But the surfers heeded our warning, and it may have saved one of their lives, or it may have saved one of their legs. Today we're going to look at a, a story where Jesus gives a warning to Nicodemus, and we're going to see how he reacts to that warning, and we're going to see how we should react that warning. So let's turn to uh, turn with me. We're going to start in John 2.23, and we're going to look at the need for the new birth. The need for the new birth. This is the Word of God. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them. For he knew all men, 
And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness? I've told you earthly things, and you do not believe? How shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, even the Son of Man." And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The first thing that we're looking at this morning is this, this passage in verse 23 focuses on the need for the new birth. It reveals that when men are born, men and women are born in this world, they are born with a totally depraved heart. And in verse 23 it says that many believed in Christ because of the signs that he had performed. But were these genuine conversions? Notice that they believed because of signs. And in verse 2 of chapter 3, we see that Nicodemus, in a sense, believed because of signs. But notice the contrast between the disciples and the people in verse 22 of chapter 2, because they believed because of what was what was spoken by Christ, the Word of God. These signs were obviously miracles that Christ performed. And the intent of these signs were to point to Christ. It was to point the people, instead of the signs, to Christ to be their Lord. But in John 2.23, the people, along with Nicodemus, become more enamored by the signs instead of being enamored 
by the sign maker. It kind of reminds me of Acts chapter 8, where you have Simon the magician, and you have the apostles working miracles before him, and he sees these miracles, and he's so amazed. In fact, he's so amazed that he, quote, believes, right? And then he's baptized. He becomes a member of the church. But then a short time later, what does he do? He's so amazed at these miracles, and he wants to have the power, and it shows what's in his heart, that he goes to Peter, and he wants to pay for that miracle-working power. It shows that his faith is not real. So we see in this passage, in John 2.23 to 3.2, the people in Nicodemus were seeing these signs that Jesus performed, but were not bowing the knee to the lordship of Christ, but instead were holding out their hands for more signs. Now, not only were these people um, lost, but they were spiritually dead. And no matter how good they looked on the outside, no matter how spiritual or how religious they looked, it didn't change the fact that they were spiritually dead. You know, that's why Jesus called the Pharisees many times whitewashed tombstones, because they looked really good on the outside, but on the inside were dead men's bones. This kind of reminds me of a cookbook my mom used to have on the coffee room table. It was called the Roadkill Cafe Cookbook. Um, and, and it was, of course, a joke book. It was uh, a book that gave recipes on how to cook roadkill. Can you imagine that? My mom having that on her table. Um, so um, th what this book showed is you can, have, you can have something on the side of the road that's dead, but it's pretty dead, meaning you know it's not squashed. Or you can have something on the side of the road that's ugly dead because it's met up with an 18-wheeler, right? But no matter what the, whether it's ugly dead or pretty dead, it's still physically dead. And that goes also for spiritually dead people. And this is what I love about this passage, the way John has arranged the way he wrote this book. He starts with, Nicodemus, as we're going to see in a second here. He starts with Nicodemus, this religious, you know, perfect-looking person in John 3. Okay? And what he says is, basically, Nicodemus is pretty dead. Right? He's pretty dead. And then he goes to the other extreme, and we're going to see this next week when I preach on John 4, he, he brings up the Samaritan woman who was, in a, who was living in an immoral lifestyle. So you've got these two extremes. You've got the pretty dead guy over here in chapter 3, right? And then you've got the ugly dead woman over here. And Jesus is saying, they both need, they both need the new birth. They both need it. They both need something that only God can do. And you know, in our society, just as theirs, 
we don't think that way. You know, when we think about the new birth, when we think about being born again, who do we think about? We don't think about Nicodemus, do we? You know, Nicodemus was one of the, you know, he's, he's one of those people we think is a good churchgoer, in their Bible all the time, um, memorizing scripture, knowing it backwards and forwards, living in a moral, a moral lifestyle, not immoral, moral lifestyle. We would look at them as an impeccable leader of the church. You don't need to be born again, Jesus. What are you talking about? But here on the other chapter, here's an immoral woman. She needs everything you can give her, God. Right? That's the way we think. And that's why this is so radical. In fact, I don't even, I think we miss the radicalness of this because we've heard it so much. This is a radical statement that Jesus is saying. He, he's throwing out morality. Wow! Jesus is doing that? Yeah, he is. He's throwing it out. Look at verse 1 and 2. And we'll look at the confrontation for the new birth. It says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, this man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Wow. So here we have Nicodemus, a Pharisee, like the Apostle Paul was when he was Saul, a keeper of the law, in fact, not only a keeper of the law, one who made more laws to protect the law. I mean, this guy was flawless, blameless, as the Apostle Paul said. When it comes to the law, the Apostle Paul said, I am blameless. That's what this guy would say, too, okay? Um, he was not only that, he was a leader, right? He was a ruler. He was a political ruler, so this guy had everything. He was probably educated at the Harvard of Israel. He had a name that was a recognizable name, like a, a Kennedy in our society, or a Trump in our society. That's how well-known this guy was. That's how important he was. That's how religious he was. If there was anyone going to heaven, it was this guy. Now, now listen to this. I used to think that he came by night because he was thinking about his salvation. He was concerned about it. No. A lot of the commentators say that. No. No, he wasn't. He was, he was content. He was going to heaven in his mind. No doubt in the world that he was going to heaven, okay? So why does he come at night? Well, look at the clue here. It says in verse 2, we know that you've come from God. It doesn't say, I know. It says, we know. So who's he talking about? He's probably talking about a small group of Pharisees that were thinking the way he was thinking. Now, we know that most of the Pharisees were thinking what? That they needed to get rid of Jesus. 
that he was competition for their power, that he was stealing people from them, right? And eventually they said, we got to kill him. We need to get rid of him. But here we have Nicodemus coming as a representative, we, of a small group probably, and he's probably going to work, trying to work some deal with Jesus. You know, they're seeing in verse 22, all these people following Christ. And they're saying, what are we going to do? We're going to lose our power here. So he comes to Jesus to work some political deal. And notice what he does. He gives a flattering introduction to Jesus. And he acts like he knows him. You know, they're best buds. Jesus doesn't react that way, does he? It, it, it kind of reminds me, this, this uh, introduction and him acting like he knows him, it reminds me of Rick, a good friend of mine, uh, back 25 years ago. Man, time flies. Um, Rick, I went through uh, Essentials of the f- New Life with Rick. It was an R.C. Sproul book. He, he's one of the first guys I discipled. And he fell in love with R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul, for those of you who don't know, is a theologian, TCA, uh, teaches at RTS in Orlando. Uh, great guy. He's written all kinds of books. Um, so after reading this book, he read everything R.C. ever had written, right? He loved the guy. <laughs> so we go, we go to a conference together, and uh, R.C. Sproul Conference, a Legionnaire Conference, and he sees R.C. Sproul, and he runs up to him, and he says, Hey, R.C., how are you doing? This is great to see you and all that stuff. And he goes, Hey, Rick Nice, how are you today? And my friend just, you know, mouth dropped to the ground. You know, and I'm sure, I'm sure he, he you know, he thought this, and he probably shouldn't have put words to it, but he said, How did you know my name? R.C. Sproul just goes like this with his hand. Your name tells me what you know. My friend kind of walks away. R.C. Sproul acted like he knew Rick. He didn't know Rick. And guess what? Nicodemus didn't know Jesus either. And so what is Jesus' response? What is Jesus' response? says this two times and you know when something's repeated in the bible two times and there's only one verse in between it that's what we need to listen to and look at what he says truly truly i say to you okay and then he says it again in verse five truly truly i say to you wow what's he saying Listen, listen to me. What I'm about to say to you is truth, and you need to listen. And guess what? He knew he wasn't listening. Look at the, look at the text. Look at verse two. Look at how many words Nicodemus says in verse two. Then look at how many words he says in verse four. And then he starts listening. He says, "Look at there's a gap there." And they go to verse nine. What does he say? How many words? Five. How can these things be? And that's it. You don't hear from him again. Right? 
just rolls over in that and i want you to see we're going to look at this next week i want you to see the contrast here you see jesus having to roll over this man and then in his conversation with a samaritan woman what does he do he has a conversation with her there's a back and forth going on but with this man he has to roll over him because he is so self-righteous he is so content in himself that jesus says you need to listen to me and then he says you need to be born again or you're not going to see the kingdom of god now i can't even imagine i can't even imagine hearing that you know what he was thinking what what does it mean to be born again it it basically is saying when, when adam and eve were created they were not only given physical life but they were given spiritual life and then when they fell when they sinned they lost that spiritual life they became spiritually dead and everybody that was born from adam and eve were born spiritually dead so all of us are born spiritually dead and the only way that we're given spiritual life again is by God, just as he gave spiritual life to Adam in um, Genesis chapter 2, 7. It says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Just as he gave life to Adam, he gives it to us when we're born again. And guess what? It's not a God does not respond to us. He doesn't respond to us saying, I choose God, therefore, now he makes me born again. No, he's the first mover. He's the one that makes the first move. He's the one that changes our heart, and then we're the responders. That's what, you know, we're going to sing Amazing Grace. That's Amazing Grace. That's what it's all about. We don't do anything. You know, we respond by faith and repentance. But God does the first move. We love because he first loved us. So so what's his response? He says, how can these things be? In verse 9. Now, I, I want you to put yourself in this guy's shoes. Put yourself in this guy's shoes. He's probably around 50 years old. I know what it's like to be 50 years old. And, and he's looking over his life, and Jesus is saying, what you've done doesn't amount to a hill of beans before God. Wow. Thank you. Right? What, what you're saying is, All of your religious pursuits, everything you've ever done, hasn't gotten you to, you know, to one step towards God. I mean, you know, that's shocking. Everything that you've done, even your political things, you know, he may have fed the poor, he may have done all kinds of great things are worthless before God. Jesus is telling this man that you need to start all over again. Wow. 
You need to go to the starting blocks. That's why he's thinking, what do I do? Climb back into my mother's womb? You know, it would be like telling an an apple farmer that you need to grow peaches. Okay? And so this this apple farmer has an orchard of peaches. And 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 he's told you got to grow peaches. And so he thinks, all right, I'm going to, there's a, Two, a, a lake two miles away, I'm going to d- dig a ditch to my apple orchard, and I'm going to get more water here, I'm going to prune my trees better, I'm going to fertilize, I'm going to pluck all the weeds, I'm going to do all this work, and uh, he does that all for a year, and what does he get? More apples. He doesn't get any peaches. And that's what Jesus is telling this man. He says, There has to be a radical change in the root in order to get new fruit. Jesus is telling Nicodemus of his need for reformation, not not for reformation, but for transformation. You know, you think of New Year's resolutions where you make a list of things you got to change. And Jesus is saying, that's what I'm not, I'm not telling you that. And see, that's what he's thinking. He's thinking Jesus came as a teacher from God. And Jesus is going to give me some more stuff to do. And I'm going to do it and everything will be fine. Right? I'll listen to you, Jesus. We, we can join parties. We can get everybody to follow us. I'll, I'll do what you want me to do. But Jesus is saying, no. That's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to teach you more stuff. And then he explains to him in verse 5 how the new birth takes place. Look at, look at verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So, what, what is he saying here? He's not saying this. A lot of people think, oh, he's saying you've got to be born from the womb, you know, the water from the womb, and then you've got to be born from the spirit. So you've got to be born and born. Now that's obvious, and that's not what he's saying. You've got to be born to be born. No, he's not saying born to be born. He's saying this. He's saying you know what the Scriptures teach. You know the Old Testament. Why, why don't you understand this? You know Ezekiel 36 and 37 that talks about God's going to give you in the New Covenant a new heart. Not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh. He's going to do this for you. Nicodemus, listen to me. Listen to me. And then finally in James 1.18, we see the word as a mean by which the new birth takes place. It says this, Taking the word of God 
gives us the new birth. And look down at verse 7. Then it says, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. So he says it again. Now, guess, guess what, guys? This is not a command. This is, he's not uh, telling Nicodemus, you have to do this. You have to do this. What he's saying is, this is a requirement that needs to be met. Jesus is trying to show Nicodemus the, the impossibility of him saving himself. And that, that kind of points me to another person that was just like Nicodemus later on in history, and it reminds me of Martin Luther. You know, remember Martin Luther, how he tried to get to God in his own way by being a monk, by being a priest, by going to the confessional, by going up the knees on his knees of the stairs at the basilica. He was trying to get to God on his own. And how did he finally understand? How did he finally understand that what he needed was Christ and Christ alone? Through going to the Word of God. And as he was reading Rome, Romans 1.17, right, Michael? As he was reading Rome, Romans 1.17, and he was trying to figure out what it meant by the righteousness of God, and he thought it meant that it was the requirement, the righteous requirements of God, that God required of man, that he had to live all these things out so that he could have a relationship with God. And he finally figured out God allowed him to understand the new birth taking place through the word of God allowed him to understand that what that meant was it was the righteousness that God gives to men. And it, at that point, he said, it was as if I was born again. And he was, through the word of God. Amazing. And that's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. It's not you. It's others. It's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sovereign in, in, in who he impacts. In fact, he does that. He he starts talking about that in verse 8. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's saying the wind goes wherever it wants to go. You don't direct it, and you don't direct the Holy Spirit either. You don't direct the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, how many of you, let me see your hands, how many of you um, chose to be born physically? How many of you work to be born? Any, no hands? Who did the work when you were born? Who did the work? Come on, moms, help me out here. Who did the work when you were born? Your mama. Yo mama, right? Your mama did. She's the one that went through all the blood the sweat, and the tears, literally, right? To give you birth. To give you life. And that's what Christ did for us. That's the whole, that's the cross. He did the work so that we could have life. He did the work. We didn't do it. 
And so he goes on. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Jesus answers and says to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of that which we know and bear witness of that which we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall I believe if I, if you, if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who is descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes may in him have eternal life. He's sitting there saying, you need to look at me in a different way. I am not just a teacher. I'm not just bringing you some rules. I am, look at that, it says, I am the Son of Man. I have come from heaven. I am the only one who has come from heaven. And I am bringing you God's word. And you need to listen to me. And then what does he do? He quotes Numbers 21. Some obscure story. Five verses out of Numbers 21. Um, verses 5 through 9. And he tells him this story. He only tells a little bit of it. He just says, he talks about Moses you know, raising up the serpent in the wilderness, right? And what happened there? The people were being disciplined by God because of their grumbling and complaining. And so God sends serpents, and they start biting the people, and they are starting to die, right? And they freak out. They go and say, we have sinned. You need to inter intervene for us. Moses goes to God, and what does God tell him? Make a, make a bronze serpent and hold it up on a pole. So that when the people look up and believe, they will be healed. And then look at verse 14. It says, even so, even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Did Nicodemus get the message? Did, did he listen? I believe he did. I believe he started at that point pondering trying to figure out what does it mean that the Son of Man needs to be lifted up? What does that mean? How, what's that have to do with the snakes biting people? You know? Can you imagine him trying to figure that out? Sort of like Martin Luther trying to figure out the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17? Well, turn with me in your Bibles to John 7. And we'll see the rest of the story. John 7, near the end, he has another meeting with the leadership. And, and they're talking about Jesus, and they're talking about why didn't you arrest him? Why didn't you bring him in? And then Nicodemus says this, and it, listen to what he says to the group. He says, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing. Does it? They answered and said to him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? 
Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And everybody went to his home. So basically they blew him off and said, Nicodemus, be quiet, sit down. You know? But what is he saying there? What is he saying? He's saying, I'm listening. I'm listening. And you need to listen too. You need to listen too. Okay, turn with me now to John 19. Now, I, I want you to think of this. Um, historically, we've got now Jesus' death on the cross and Nicodemus seeing that death on the cross and seeing Jesus raised up and then his eyes being opened and clicked. It happened. He understands. He understands the word of God. He understands why Christ had to come. He understands why Christ had to be lifted up. And, and you might be thinking, well, Mark, how do you know all that? How do you know that? Well, look at, look at John 19, 38 and 40. It says this, and after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one, and I want you to hear right now, he wasn't secret anymore. For fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. He came therefore and took away his body. And Nicodemus came also, who had first come to him by night bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds of weight. And so they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings and with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You know what the burial custom of the Jews was? It wasn't, it wasn't to have rich men burying people. That this would be unheard of, right? Especially a Pharisee touching a dead man's body wouldn't happen. You know, they would have servants doing that. But here we have two rich men burying Jesus. And why? Why? Why did they stick their necks out? Why did they risk everything? Because Nicodemus here is risking everything everything he's risking being thrown out of the sanhedrin he's risking being thrown out of israel as a jew why did he do that because this is his first step of loving his savior isn't that amazing isn't that amazing Nicodemus wanted to love Christ more than his position or his power. No matter what the cost, he was going to do it. How, how do you know if you're born again? You know, there, how do you know if you're God's elect? Does God say, uh, look for the E written on your forehead? He doesn't say that, does he? Nowhere in Scripture. 
how do you know then? How do you know? Well, look at the life of Nicodemus. How do I know that his life was changed? Because of his actions. Because of his love for Christ. In, in chapter 3, um, how do you know if you're born again? Have you seen your sin and your need for Christ? Nicodemus didn't see that in John chapter 3. He didn't see his need for Christ. All he was looking at is himself. He didn't see his sin. He had his list of righteous accomplishments which he put before Christ, right? Just like the Apostle Paul. Have you trusted Christ alone for your salvation? You know, Nicodemus didn't know who Christ was. He was still just looking at him as a teacher. And Jesus is saying, I must be lifted up. I must die in your place. He didn't get that. He didn't get that. How do you know if you have a new heart? Do you have a desire to love Christ more and more each day? Do you desire to obey his word? It's not perfection it's the direction of your life. Has it changed? Do you desire to read his word? Do you desire to give the gospel to others as we're having a class on that, starting today on evangelism? Do you desire to share the love of God with others? You see, a sinful, self-righteous person like Nicodemus in John chapter 3 didn't want to have anything to do with Christ. What he wanted to focus on was his own power, his own glory. But once God changed his heart, then he responded by faith and repentance to live a life that honored Christ in all that he did. And maybe you're here this morning and you're thinking, you know, Maybe I'm Nicodemus. Maybe I'm Nicodemus. Then you need to look up to Christ and see him lifted up for you. And, and maybe you're not Nicodemus. Maybe you're like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman who, who thought she was religious, who thought she was a believer, but who was living an immoral lifestyle. You know, if that's the case for you, then you need to see Christ lifted up for you. And, and what about believers? You know, what, what should you get from this message? What should you get from this message? What should be your response? You know, we need to understand that we were once just like Nicodemus. Every one of us, in some way, was like Nicodemus. In fact, even after becoming Christians, one of the last sins that we leave behind is self-righteousness. But we need to understand that we were all like Nicodemus. And the only reason why we are following God today is because of his mercy and his grace in which he's given us a new heart 
and given us the ability to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. And even our faith and our repentance, and th this is the amazing thing, he commands us to do it, right? He tells you to repent and believe. It's a command, but then he gives you it as a gift. He gives you it all as a gift. In fact, everything you have today is a gift from God, is a gift from His grace and His mercy. So what should be your response? Well, one writer said this. A woman once said to me, if I knew that I was saved because of what I did, if I contributed to my salvation, then God couldn't ask anything of me because I had made a contribution. But if I am saved by grace, sheer grace alone, then there's nothing he cannot ask of me. And the writer says, and that's right. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. You know, that reminds me of the hymn it says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, and my all. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your grace. and your mercy in which you've reached out and drawn us to yourself and allowed us to see the truth of the gospel and understand it. And, and that's all a miracle in itself. That's you changing our hearts. Father, we thank you for you doing the first work and Father, allowing us to respond by faith and repentance. Help us to then, now, live in thankful obedience to you because of the grace that you've given us that we will never deserve. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you, Lord, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.